You're listening to the Living Leadership Podcast, Growing Disciple Making. The following address by Mark Bonington is on the subject of grace and glory. It is taken from the Book of 2 Corinthians and was delivered at the 2008 Living Leadership Pastoral Refreshment Conference. Father, thank you for Mark. Thank you for your work in his life. Thank you for all that he has learnt of you over the years and for what he's going to share with us tonight. Please open all of our hearts to you. And as Mark speaks, may you be speaking into our lives and teaching us more about yourself. Equip him, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to put both of these mics on and uh, somebody at the back can decide which of them to, to use. I suppose one of the questions that uh, I and the pastoral team at our church get asked more than any other by students in Durham is what is God's purpose for my life? What is God's purpose for my life? Some people come and ask this question because they already have plans and they're a bit worried about God's purpose for their life. More of them, I think, have absolutely no idea what to do next. And in lieu of doing a PGC and becoming a teacher, they uh, get to prayer and ask the question, what's God's purpose for my life? I always say to those who have plans, remember what Woody Allen says, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Uh, But more often I try to say to people, this really is the wrong question. The question is, what is God's purpose and what is my place in it? And tonight, as we look at this section from 2 Corinthians, we're looking at the question of how we contextualize our ministry within the great purposes of God. Sometimes I find it hard to keep perspective on what ministry is really all about. You may have heard of the story of the Methodist minister's wife, who when he died shortly after his retirement, had the headstone in the cemetery inscribed with the words, Gone to another meeting. (laughs) She relented just before she gave the instruction and changed it more sensitively to Gone to a better meeting. (laughs) A year ago, I talked to a friend of mine who is a senior Church of England clergyman. Uh, We had dinner together with his family. I was visiting his home while uh, on another trip. And uh, as men do at the end of the evening, it was only walking across to my car as he went to unlock the gate of the car park at the college where he teaches to let me out, where we finally got round to the question that we should have been discussing all evening, which is, how are you really doing? How's your ministry really going? And uh, in the three minutes walk across the grass, he poured out his heart to me. He said, uh, my boss doesn't make decisions. Uh, We don't have enough staff. One of my children is ill. I'm deeply, deeply discouraged and I'm struggling. And I'm wondering whether I ought to give this all up and go and do something else. And uh, in one of those moments, I said to the Lord, please, Lord, give me something from you to say to this person. And the Lord said to me, just straight back, uh, he's asking the wrong question. He's asking the wrong question. 
And I was able to say to him, the ministry that you perform here in preparing people for leadership in the church is much, much more important than your immediate problems and difficulties. Just consider that you are investing in the lives of men and women who will have a transformative effect on the church in 10 and 15 and 20 and 30 and 40 years' time. And he turned to me and he said, I needed to hear that. Just needed to hear that. I needed somebody to put my problems in context. Uh, I went to see him, speak to him recently and said, how's it going? He said, it's great. I'm glad I didn't leave. It would have been the wrong thing to do. 2 Corinthians 4 as a chapter should probably be called How Not to Lose Heart. And I suppose we could take some kind of encouragement from the fact that Paul not once but twice in verse 1 and verse 16 says, we do not lose heart. And you only say that if you think, I might lose heart, if it's a real possibility. But it's my contention tonight that given the right perspective, we need not lose heart. Many of you who are DIY enthusiasts will have heard of Draper Drills. If you go into any DIY store in Britain, uh, you will see shelves where Draper Drills are being sold. But they had a crisis about 12 or 14 years ago because with cheap imports from Eastern Europe, Draper was struggling to maintain market share. A quality product against cheap and increasingly good quality Uh, imports from Eastern Europe couldn't compete and they called in management consultants and offered them £180,000 to talk to everybody and to come up with a new market strategy. And so management consultants came in, they talked to the management, they talked to the workers, they talked to the manufacturers, they talked to the customers, they talked to the marketing people, they went into DIY stores and asked people about Draper drills. And after four months of studying Draper's product, Draper's processes, they called the senior management of the company together and said, we've got a presentation for you, we'd like you to come, we've got a strategy. And so the senior management sat down in a room, about a dozen of them, and they put a PowerPoint presentation up, and they said, this is not going to take long, we've just got three slides for you. And they thought, well, that sounds like £60,000 a slide to me. That's quite expensive. The first slide came up and it said, you told us you make drills. £60,000 for repeating back to them what they already knew seemed a lot of money. The second slide just had two words on it. It said, you don't. Another £60,000 of something that was manifestly untrue was also a disappointment. But the last slide said, you make holes. And Draper Drills changed their entire marketing strategy. They are now the leading company in the world in laser drilling technology because they realized they had confused means and ends. They had got their noses too close to the ground. 
and they could no longer see the big picture. They could no longer see the sky. Paul, in our text, locates his ministry in the whole flow of God's redeeming purpose. The God who says, let light shine out of darkness at the beginning of all things has shone in our hearts. He contextualizes the gospel of Jesus Christ in the context of God's eternal purposes in creating the world. He talks about the God who revealed himself to Moses as Moses hid in the cleft of the rock and Yahweh, the great I am, the God who really is, passed past him and Moses' face shone so brightly that he had to hang a veil over it so that the Israelites would not be blinded. It is the cry of the human heart to see the Creator And it's not possible to do so in our sin without the new bodies that the Lord is going to give us one day. But Moses came closest. And this wonderful revelatory moment, perhaps the high point of revelation in the Old Testament, where Moses seeing God's back has his face shine with the reflection of the Shekinah glory of God. Paul says, in our ministry, as we scrabble around with a church of 120 in Corinth, as we talk about all the pastoral problems we've got, as we consider all the practical difficulties of a church that's super spiritual, that's in Discipline that's immoral, that can't get its worship right, all those problems. We have the glory of the eternal God amongst us. Talks about ministry under the mercy of God. And just after our text, and I'm going to nick a little bit from a few verses later, he talks about the God who has raised up the Lord Jesus and will raise us up with him and bring us finally into the presence of God. One of the things I've discovered in teaching Romans is that it is a shock to theological students to discover that when it gets to Romans chapter 8, Paul doesn't just talk about the glory of the gospel and the life of the Spirit in the believer, but he sets this in the context of God's redeeming purpose in the whole of the cosmos. Not just to liberate the children of God, but to bring all creation, the material creation, which has been subjected to futility and hope, to bring that material creation also into that glorious liberty. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones entitled his first series of sermons when they were published on Ephesians, God's ultimate purpose. And he wanted to contextualise what we're doing on the ground in simple ways, running churches, leading people to Christ, teaching the Bible, ministering, praying, preaching in the context of God's big picture. And that's what he does here. He invites us to stand back and see God's ultimate purpose. 
It's a wonderful little and true story of a young boy who in the 17th century wheeled his barrow of mud and bricks past a, a shop in the city of London every day. In the morning he would take the barrow of bricks, the barrow empty, he would come back in the evening with a barrow of bricks. And all day, backwards and forwards, and then he'd take the barrow home in the evening and come back the next morning. And eventually the shopkeeper, who was curious, said to him, what are you doing, pushing mud and bricks through the city of London? And the little boy said, I'm helping Mr. Wren build St. Paul's Cathedral. He knew what he was really about. He knew what he was contributing to. Paul has just finished saying something really frightening. He has just said that ministers can't be given references, or rather ministers don't need references. References are one of the banes of my life, because students come up to me in church and say, I need a reference. It's usually for Christian organisations, but it might be for jobs. You're my minister, will you give me a reference? I could not pick this person out of a crowd. Uh, thankfully, we have a student worker who works up the references and then I read them through and put my name to them. <laughs> it's therefore the bane of his life. <laughs> One employer told me he doesn't value references from ministers of religion for employment because they only say nice things and they only see people two hours a week, so what's the point? I want to know what they're like at work. But the frightening thought that Paul begins with in chapter 3, in the passage just before the one we have read to us, is that those of us in Christian ministry have references already. The references that are written on the hearts and in the lives of those to whom we, whom we minister. The frightening thing is that my reference, the reference for my ministry and my preaching, is walking about the streets of Durham and the northeast of England day by day. That's a pretty frightening prospect. But our congregations are a living testimony to the truth and the power of what we preach. And that's a pretty scary thought. Thankfully, Paul says something else. He says, this is not from ourselves, but it's from God. No preacher, I think, should ever give the impression that they have the truth. No preacher should ever give the impression that they have the truth. Every preacher should give the impression that the truth has hold of them. Truth which is domesticated, controlled, owned, distanced, packaged, that's no good to anybody. Truth with, which grips us and motivates us and inspires us and empowers us. This is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying we don't think what we're saying is true. I'm saying that this is an arresting truth that ought to have a grip on our lives. And so this is what Paul says, it's not from ourselves. It comes from God, and he takes hold of us, and he uses us. And the way he uses us 
Those are our references. And so the word that comes out over and over again in the passage that we're looking at is the word doxa, the word glory. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear that word. It can be a political word, it can be a word of celebration in sports. Did anybody see Kaka after he scored the winning goal in the uh, European Cup final? He lifted up his shirt and underneath it said, I belong to Jesus. In his moment of glory, he said, I belong to Jesus. I've got a photograph of this. It's absolutely wonderful. In his moment of glory, he wanted to say something about what was much more important to him than scoring the winning goal in the Champions League final. But when Paul uses the word glory, he means the Shekinah glory of God, the incandescent glory of the presence of the living God. That uncreated light which was there before God said, let there be light at the beginning of the world. This was the incandescent glory on Sinai that Moses saw passing by and which caused his face to shine. What Moses saw was the reality of the glory of God. What was shining from his face was only the fading reflection of it. And so first of all, let's understand the Old Testament background. Let's see that it is the incandescent, uncreated glory of God that Paul is talking about. And it's this glory which is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And secondly, notice, despite all the contrasts, and we're going to look at just a few of them in a minute, how careful Paul is to say that this was real glory. This was the glory of God in the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant. It wasn't Old Testament bad, New Testament good. It was Old Testament glorious, New Testament even more glorious. I'm told if you go out on a dark night when there's no cloud and you look at the full moon for long enough, it can blind you, even though its light is only the reflected glory of the sun. And you will walk away for a few minutes not being able to see. And Paul says, the glory of the old covenant was real but fading. It was significant But it was only a reflection. The glory revealed in the new covenant is permanent and original. And he in fact says growing, growing in us, not fading. And so the picture of the sun and the moon is a perfect picture of what Paul's getting on at here. And what he's really saying is when the sun comes up in the morning and it rises in the sky, sometimes the moon's still there. But we don't notice it anymore, do we? Because the glory of the sun outshines the glory of the moon. And so Paul begins with contrasts, contrasting ministries. And as I was 
preparing this over the last few days, I just saw how you could pile these up, the contrast between letter and spirit, between the ministry of death and the ministry of life, between the ministry of condemnation and the ministry of righteousness or justification, between the covenant that is set aside and the covenant that is permanent. And notice it's deliberately set aside by God. It doesn't just fade away. Paul actually says it's set aside by God so that something more glorious can come. It is fading, and we are going from glory to glory. Ours is a ministry of boldness. Moses is a ministry of shame. He hangs a veil over his face. Moses' glory was fading. Ours is increasing. And there must be a dozen of these contrasts that you can pick out in the text. I just want to bring three to you to emphasize and apply to our ministry. First of all, Paul says that the ministry on Sinai was a ministry in stone. Literally, if you go to the top of Mount Sinai, it is granite, some of the hardest stone on the surface of the earth. The Ten Commandments were carved in granite. But by contrast, our ministry is written in the softness of human hearts. It's a contrast here between the complexity of the law and the simplicity of the good news in Jesus Christ. Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, 613 commandments altogether in Torah. It's a whole burden for the people of God. My wife is a GP in Gateshead and she works with an Orthodox Jewish doctor. One night she went round to see him on a Friday evening and as she got close to his house she found his car abandoned at the side of the road. It had a little note on it saying to the police, I'll pick this up on Saturday evening after dusk, but I've walked home. She got to his house, knocked on the door, the door was open, she went in, she called out, Martin, are you there? He said, yes, I'm here. She said, can I turn on the light? He said, I'd be very glad if you'd turn on the lights. I can't turn it on, but it'd be great if you turned it on. Thank you so much. He mistimed his journey home from one of his visits and he was stuck. Jewish patients in their practice won't go to the hospital on the Sabbath. A woman who's bleeding when she's pregnant won't go to the hospital. She can go to the hospital if her life can be saved. The problem is, if the doctor says, no, you're all right, you can go home, she's stuck on the doorstep of the hospital until dusk. You can't put a pin in a lapel because it's sewing. You can't wear your false teeth on a Sabbath because it's carrying a burden and so on. Jesus simply said, two commandments are enough. Two commandments are enough. Love your neighbour and love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. <coughs> and yet sometimes painting on people's hearts, chiseling the gospel in people's lives, is really hard, isn't it? Isn't that difficult? I have a friend who was a Baptist minister for many years. Every year he used to repaint the church hall in their church building. And one of the deacons said to him, why do you do that, David? Why do you repaint the church hall? 
It doesn't need repainting every year. You change the colour slightly so you can see where you've gone. Why do you? Re- we could get somebody else to do it. We could get a team of people to come in. Are you unhappy with the colour that you chose last year? He said no. He said when I paint the church wall, it changes in a few hours. <laughs> in my ministry, change is very slow. It's like watching your children grow up. Sometimes we feel it would just be easier to put the Ten Commandments up behind the pulpit and say that's God's message. But we're being challenged to write the message of the Gospel in people's hearts. It's not a message in granite. It's not all the complexity of all those regulations. But it is the challenge of how to write God's message on people's hearts. Secondly, it's a ministry on the inside and not the outside. So many people leave ministry because the inside and the outside don't correspond. People leave for teaching, they leave for the social services, to work for charities, to go and run Oxfam, because what's on the inside is no longer corresponding to what's on the outside. One heart surgeon friend of my wife's said he thought somewhere between 60 and 75% of heart conditions were exacerbated by stress. Stress that makes people overeat, stress that makes people smoke, stress that is there because people live with guilt. They don't want to be found out. They're not who people think they are. I went to a church weekend in Whitby to the centre run by the OHP, the Order of the Holy Paraclete. And I went with a church group from Leeds and on the Sunday morning before the morning communion service that we, were having, uh, that we were having, I woke up having had a really vivid dream. A really vivid dream of walking around the house and the house looked perfect from the in, out, outside but when you got up to the windows and looked in it was completely empty. And I realised that God wanted me to share this at the communion service. I was feeling a bit disappointed because it says in Acts that it's old men who dream dreams. And I wasn't feeling so great. But this had never happened to me before. It's never happened to me since. And I stood up at the communion service and I said, I know I'm meant to be preaching, but I just think God wants me to share this picture with somebody. And the congregation was about the size of the number of people here. And one person in the congregation just broke down in tears. And he came up to me afterwards and said, that is my life. He says, everything I'm doing is complete hypocrisy. Will you pray for me? I'm running the Christian Union. I've run the Christian Union. I'm now working for a church. He said, my life is empty inside. The cupboard is bare. I have no spiritual food left. And I want God to come and fill me. And God did a glorious work of refilling his life. And the prompt for that was God doing something that I hope he doesn't do again because otherwise my children will take their mickey out of me even more. People in the world are looking for people in the church who are different on the inside. They can read us. They can tell the difference between those who are only doing things externally and those for whom it's real. 
my wife has a patient that she's not allowed to evangelize her patients, but she has a patient who, of his own admission, is a deeply evil man. He doesn't trust himself in some situations. He has a mother who's a Christian and who prays for him regularly. And there's a mission coming up in the northeast, and Ruth ventured the suggestion that he might go along to the mission. And he said, no, I won't, but there's one man who I will talk to, and I will go to the mission to try and talk to him. He is a converted gangster from a very, very violent background in the northeast. And he said, I'll talk to him because he knows what's in my heart. But his heart has been changed. We're still praying for this guy. We're praying for this guy that he'll make good on that promise when the mission comes along. That he'll have a chance to meet this guy. And that Jesus Christ will do a transforming work in his life. But he is in terror of what's in his own heart. Brothers and sisters, we need a ministry that is real, not just on the outside, but on the inside. What's on the outside is important, but it has to flow from what's within us. And thirdly, the third contrast I just want to bring out is that our ministry is a ministry that's on the up and up and on and on, not the down and out. Well, I don't know how you're doing. Some of you may feel, yeah, that's me, we're on the up and up. Others may be feeling, well, you don't know my situation if that's what you think. But Paul is saying, within the purposes of God, this world is fading away. And God is bringing about a whole new creation, a whole new world. He's changing us from glory to glory to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is what God is doing. And he is the almighty God and he will have his purposes in the world. This is his promise. This is his purpose. This is his intention. And we have to see what we're doing in the context of what God is doing and this is God's ultimate purpose. We have taken over Moses' ministry of reflecting the light of the glory of God. And Paul says this happens by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Every time we allow the Holy Spirit into our preaching, into our teaching, into our prayer, into our counselling, into our worship leading, we are allowing God to be at work in us to work out this ultimate purpose. And he says in verse 17 of chapter 3, the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Wow, do I need freedom in my ministry. I need the freedom that comes from the Spirit. I need freedom from my sins. I need freedom from my fears. I need freedom from my reputation. I need freedom from other people's expectations. I need freedom from needing my own way. I need freedom from wanting to be wanted. I need freedom from the desire to impress. I need freedom from the fear of failure. I need freedom from jealousy of other people's success. I need freedom from pride in my own modest efforts. And you can add to the list. This freedom comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I need freedom 
to see God face to face and not be ashamed. I need the freedom to be changed into the person that Christ wants me to be. This is the power of Christ effective in us. It's real, it's vital, and it's meant to bring us freedom from these and many other things. I wonder how real the freedom of the Spirit is in my life and how real it is in your life. And then Paul says this, It is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry. The glory of the gospel of grace is that God doesn't want your goodness. He wants your cry for help. He doesn't want my gifts. He wants my availability to him. The glory of the gospel of Christ is this, that he knows me through and through. He knows me as a sinner. He sees all my failure and all my weakness. And yet we still have this ministry by the mercy of God. This is the grace of the gospel. It's our congregations. It's us who place high expectations on us. God's expectations of us are gloriously low because he knows us through and through. He expects us to be sinners entirely dependent on his grace. This is the mercy of God. And what does he expect of us? Well, Paul goes on to tell us we need to renounce some things, the ministry or the responsibility of renunciation. We need to renounce the things that one hides. These are not the things of glory, they're the things of shame. They have no place in a life that is called into his glory and kingdom and whose job it is to call others into his glory and kingdom. Paul doesn't specify, he doesn't say what they are. We can name these things in our own hearts and we can recognise them in our own lives. But the second thing Paul says we should renounce is the temptation to tamper, to trim, to weave, to please human beings. He says we commend ourselves to God by appealing to people's consciences. Can I just suggest to you that one of the mistakes we can too easily make is either to appeal to people's minds or to appeal to their hearts, an appeal to the rational or an appeal to the emotional. Paul says we appeal to people's consciences. What does he mean by that? The point at which we know right from wrong, the point at which our will is touched. He knows that gospel ministry will face opposition, hostility, indifference, rejection. And in fact, in my experience, hostility is better than indifference. The apathetic sigh is no response at all. At least the hostile person is having their conscience touched and their life is being challenged. Meet a hostile person and you'll meet somebody who's on the journey to responding to the gospel. The person who shrugs it off is just not interested. Truly transformative ministry is when we commend ourselves as genuine on the inside, transparently honest on the outside, but challenging people 
at the level of their conscience and of their will. If only I could say to you now, this guarantees successful ministry. Here's a set of techniques, just do these things. Here's a list in, one, in 2 Corinthians. It doesn't come from me, it comes from Paul, so it must be good. This guarantees successful ministry. Sadly, Paul says, this isn't true. And the reason why it isn't true, because it isn't true, is that there are two gods in the equation. There are two gods in the equation. There is the purpose of the almighty God who made the universe, who said, let light shine out of darkness. But now Paul says the single strongest thing about the work of Satan in the whole of scripture, I believe. He says he is the God of this world. And to call Satan or the devil the god of this world is an extremely powerful statement. Almost to call the god of this world Satan or the devil is to diminish the force of what Paul is saying to us. He's saying that the god of this world demands people's loyalty. And how much we know that. Isn't it obvious? How often do people come to church on a Sunday? Two weeks out of three? Three weeks out of four if they're really committed. But going on holiday somewhere is nice. Going away to visit friends. I'm very, very glad to have people in our church who give absolutely sacrificially of their time and of their commitment. But you can often see in people's lives divided loyalties because this world in good ways and bad ways, is asking for people's loyalty. And the God of this world would have it like that. He has real power and he has real control. And Paul says he's plucked out the eyes of people and they cannot see the light of the gospel. It doesn't matter how bright the light is, somebody with no optic nerves can never see it. It's like trying to describe the, the horizon with the sun setting for somebody who has never seen. This is the work that the devil does. This is the work that the God of this world does. How do we overcome that? Well, first of all, of course, it's the work of the Spirit. Paul's already said that. But a little later on, he's going to say something else. He's going to say it depends on the kind of God that you believe in. The kind of God that you believe in. This would be an impossible situation if it weren't for the God that we worship. Remember what he says about Abraham in Romans Chapter 4, he says not just that Abraham believed God, he says he believed in a God who raises the dead and makes things appear out of nothing. If he didn't believe in that kind of God, how could Abraham have had faith? He'd been told that his descendants would come through Isaac. He'd been told that through Isaac he would become the father of many nations. He'd been taken out into the desert, shown the sand. He'd looked down and thought, my descendants are going to be like that by the promise of God. He'd looked up on a starry night at the skies and seen all the stars and believed that God had spoken to him that this is what his descendants would be like. He believed that word of God and then God commands him to go and sacrifice his son. 
How can you believe those two things unless you believe in a God who raises the dead and causes things to come out of nothing? Abraham reasoned that if Isaac is dead, God can raise him up. God can make anything. Just from the dust of the earth, he makes human beings. One theologian said this, Abraham looked impossibility in the eye and then he believed. This is a big challenge, but the question is, what kind of God do we really believe in? Do we believe in the God who made the cosmos? Do we believe in the God of infinite power? Do we believe in the God who sends that power into our lives by his Holy Spirit? I had the privilege a few years ago of speaking with Bishop Leslie Newbegin. He's an unusual, or was an unusual person, being a Presbyterian bishop. There are not many of those. Uh, He served in the Church of South India. And when he came back after a long and successful ministry to this country and he looked at the desperate state of the church, he uh, wrote up his notes on mission and published them. Uh, He was asked as an old man uh, in a radio interview what he thought of the state of the church in Britain. And the interviewer said to him, Bishop Leslie, you've seen the church in India, it's been growing very quickly, it's been very successful. What do you think when you come back to Britain? Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? And he thought for a moment and he said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Where would we be on Good Friday afternoon as Jesus is dying without a God who can raise the dead? I wonder whether you would be an optimist or a pessimist then. But with the living God, all bets are off. All bets are off. Because he can bring life from the dead, light out of darkness, something out of nothing. A man dead in the tomb, back to life. Paul is asking us, do we understand the purpose of God and do we really believe in this living God? And so it's not you, it's not me who bears this responsibility first of all. It's God. The answer is not the latest fad. I'm sorry, Jonathan, it's not the best book. It's not the most fantastic new idea. It's not perfect organization. It's the Lord who is the Spirit. And we didn't read verse 7 of chapter 4, but Paul says this, God made it that way. It was God's purpose that it be like this. We have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. God made it this way, just as God deliberately chose through the foolishness of the cross to save the world. So he has chosen through weak and earthly vessels to put this ultimate treasure 
So Humphrey Davy was a very famous scientist. He invented the miner's safety lamp. He was knighted for his contribution to science in many different areas. When he was an old man, he was asked, Sir Humphrey, what was your greatest discovery? And he said, Michael Faraday. <laughs> it's not about us. It's about our mediation of the glorious God and the glorious gospel. He shone his glorious light into us so that we can shine it out. But it's his light. It's the light of the glory of the eternal God in the face of Jesus Christ. My motto for this year is not found in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Think of us in this way as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. In the ancient world, when the emperor's slave came into town, every free man knew that he was superior in status legally to the emperor's slave. And every free man knew you did exactly what the emperor's slave said. Brothers and sisters, we are servants of Jesus Christ. We are servants of Jesus Christ. But we are servants of Jesus Christ. That is our status in the gospel. Servanthood is double-sided. It's humility and service, but it's status and representation. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to think of ourselves in this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of your mysteries. Fill us, Lord, with a vision of your ultimate purpose to bring all things together under Christ, to liberate the children of God and through them to bring all creation into its glorious liberty. Remind us, Lord, of the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives to shine out the glory of the gospel and to communicate the glory of the living God. And Lord, most of all, fill us with a vision of yourself, the eternal God, who speaks and things come into being, who creates this out of nothing. Of the Living Leadership Podcast. For more about Living Leadership, to connect with us, to give, or to sign up for regular prayer news, please visit livingleadership.org. Blessings.